So as I said, we are in the last week of our series, New Life, and we've been, we've been looking at this topic through the lens of, of a question, right? If, Jesus, uh, if what Jesus says is true, that he came to bring life and to bring life to the full, why don't often, why is our lived experience often not, you know, it doesn't really feel like life to the full? Why is that? And what we've been talking about throughout this series is that one of the main problems that we run into is that really, if we, you know, our lives don't look often a whole lot like Jesus. And so maybe the reason that we don't experience this life to the full that Jesus offers is because really we're living life through a different lens. We're not living life through the lens of Jesus and the life that Jesus came to bring. Instead, maybe unintentionally and unthought through, we've bought into many of the lies of our culture that have promised life and life abundantly. Whether that's through, you know, saving, you know, working really hard so I can take lots of holidays, or whether that's, you know, so I can buy this or I can buy that, or, or you know, if I just had this many kids then my life would be happy. If I just had this spouse then my life would be happy. If I just had this or that or the other thing, my life would be more full. And yet what we realize over and over is that we are chasing a ghost. We aren't experiencing that life to the full. And so what we've been doing throughout this series is then saying, basically, we're living with the assumption of this, that if we want to experience the life of Jesus, it starts by adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. And so we've looked at that really through three main categories, knowing Jesus, right? So we looked at the idea of, of knowing Jesus as we talked about abiding and as we talked about the way, um, the life of, of the mind. And even to, to another extent, the life of, of the body, right? Of how we live and, and move and have our being. <laughs> that all of those things can, can lead us to knowing uh, Jesus, right? And then we also talked about the idea of, of being like Jesus, right? So we talked about the categories of, of rest and how, how Jesus took time to, to rest, right? He took time to, be, uh, to abide, but he also took time to, to rest. He was with people all the time he was actively involved, but we also see Jesus getting away to rest, right? And then we, we talked about like the idea of being um, like Jesus in our, in our relationships, right? In the way that we, uh, we live with other people in community, right? That Jesus lived in community, right? He had his, his kind of, you know, his best friends, you know, Peter, James, and John. He had his 12 who were like his really good friends, right? that he, he mentored and discipled. And then aside from that, there were at least 70, 70 other like, kind of close followers of Jesus. And after that, I mean, we see crowds of thousands of people, right? We see Jesus investing in relationships. And it wasn't just uh, in, the, in the 12 and the 70 and the people that followed. I mean, it was people like the woman who touched his garment. It was Roman centurions who, you know, it was, it was Jewish synagogue leaders who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus continually invested in relationships, right? And so, so we see that this idea, we need to be these kinds of people that spend time abiding with Jesus, that spend time you know, in the life of the mind trying to, you know, to live out of the story of Jesus, to, to invest in, in making that story our story. And what we do with our body, talking about how that, how that matters, 
if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to know Jesus and the idea of resting and relationships. And then last week, we talked about like doing the things, maybe more the category of doing the things that Jesus did. So the way that we work and the way that we spend our money, like Luke talked about that. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you, if you, if you missed it. Right? So we've been looking at all of these categories, these ways of um, and suggesting that we set up intentional rhythms of life that help us to counter and to reform the unintentional ways that we go about our life. Because most of us, let's be honest, don't actually think about the rhythms of our life. We just don't. We just go through life. We do things, you know, like we just live. We're not really thinking through what are the things that I'm doing and how are they making me the person I am, right? Okay, so if we want to experience the life of Jesus, it starts by adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at the topic of, of gospel and of, um, sorry, why all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> Gospel and hospitality. I think I look later in my notes as if I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I promise I have actually you know, looked at the gospel and hospitality. We're looking at the lens of looking at our lives through the lens of gospel and hospitality. Those two things are very deeply intertwined. And in fact, the whole idea of gospel really, in a lot of ways, is intertwined with, with all of them. Our understanding of the gospel will inform all of our rhythms and categories of life, how I see the gospel, what I think the gospel is, <laughs> will inform uh, every category of our lives. So um, one of the main reasons I believe that we don't experience life to the full, and maybe in this way we kind of save the best for last, I don't know, not necessarily the best sermon, but you know, talking about the gospel, like you can't go wrong with that, right? But one of the main reasons I believe that we don't experience the life to the full that Jesus promises is because we have an anemic gospel, a weak gospel, or maybe just a weak view of the gospel, that oftentimes uh, maybe our view of the gospel is keeping us from the life that Jesus wants us to experience. That the gospel maybe that we believe keeps us from having the power to live the new life that God created for us. And therefore then, ends up lacking the power to bring the blessing into our lives that God promises, and not just the blessing into our lives, but to be a blessing to the world. Right. So if we think back to our God Has a Name series, one of the things that we said is that what we think about when we say the word God deeply matters. It informs who we are and who we become. And many people, when you say God may have a completely different concept than you. Like when we use the word God, we can't just use it and assume that everybody thinks the same thing we do. And I think we have to be careful when it comes to the word gospel as well. Because that's a word that gets thrown around, right? Gospel-centered this, or gospel this, or gospel that. Like, but we don't always talk about what we mean when we say gospel. And so what I wanna do, right? We're gonna have to fly fast, and we're gonna do this. Now, here's, here's the thing. because. I hate doing this. I don't like to like fly fast. You know this because my sermons tend to be long, right? Okay, so I want to encourage you. If there is anything that you're just like, I really want him to unpack that a bit more, or like, I don't know I quite understand that, or can you, you know, like, please, 
please talk to me afterwards. I would love to just monopolize all of your time and talk to you forever about this. No, um, but like, but no, I, the thing is, is like, this is my heart. Like, this matters, guys, when it comes to gospel and when it comes to hospitality. And I want to be able to get to hospitality as well. So that's why we're going to like, you know, we're, we're going to like, we're going to fly high. Okay. But what we're going to do is we're going to define the gospel. I'm going to define what I, I think the Bible teaches that the gospel is. Okay. And so, so even there, rather than just kind of saying what the gospel isn't, I'm just going to say what I think the gospel is. And I think this is really important, although we will have a small section on what the gospel isn't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So here's the question then. We'll just get moving. What is the gospel? All right. So there's a Greek word, surprise, surprise, underneath the word gospel. Okay. We use, we use the word gospel, but underneath that word, because the Bible is a translation from Greek into English, right underneath that word is a word called euangelion. Okay? And here's why that matters. Because in our world, in the world we live in, when we say gospel, typically people think of like, at least within the Christian world, we think of like the gospel of Jesus. But that's not always the way people use it, right? You know, I mean, you could say like, you know, the gospel of this or the gospel of that. But here's the thing. Euangelion, at its very core, here's what the word means good news. And it's not a church word. Gospel was not a church word. It was a word that Christians took or that Jesus took and said, and he said, I'll take that. Thank you very much. And I'm going to use it. But it was a word that was used commonplace in the Roman world or the Greco-Roman world. And it literally just meant good news. And it was typically a good news announcement. It was an announcement that something wonderful had happened. You were supposed to get psyched or amped about something, you know, something amazing. You've got to hear this, right? And so what you need to picture when you hear the word gospel, because this is what people in Jesus' day would have pictured when they heard the word euangelion. They would picture some guy. Now, I, I have like the medieval picture in my mind always for some reason, but like, you know, some guy standing up, you know, rolling, rolling the, the scroll, hear ye, hear ye, you know, like a message from like the king, right? This is what it was done. So, okay, so picture like the common way euangelion would be used, right? It's like some guy wanders into a city, hear ye, hear ye, okay? Everybody listen, Caesar has come in and he has won the battle. He has defeated, you know, the enemy, we are now free. Caesar has, you know, freed these people from oppression. And, you know, and everybody's supposed to, oh, wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, oh, great news. You know, this is great news, you know, or like, you know, or, or um, you know, so think of it like in that way. It's an announcement that something has taken place and it is good news for you. Or it's supposed to be, anyway, good news for you. All right? It's not necessarily a Christian word. And we find this interestingly, and this, this I think, because I said I was going to say what the gospel is, but there's a reason, there's a reason we're going to talk about this for a moment, all right, really briefly. What the Christian gospel isn't, is an announcement about the powers of this world, all right, and that's important, because like I said, in Jesus's day, this was a common thing. The gospel would often be announced about kings and about their victories or what they've accomplished and in fact, in Jesus' day, if you read, the, if you read you know, Luke chapter 2, you find that Jesus was born in the time of Caesar who? Does anybody know? Caesar? Caesar Augustus. Okay? Now, he's one of the most significant people. Outside of Jesus, he's one of the most significant people that have ever lived. 
Okay, because he is the first Roman emperor. Like, he's the guy who becomes the emperor. And we could get into the history of Caesar Augustus. We're not going to. But here's why bringing up Caesar Augustus is important. Because, again, he was Caesar up until, like, you know, during Jesus' childhood, even. Okay? And in 6 BC, there was uh, an inscription that was made in uh, Priene, how do you say it? I don't know, Turkey. And it refers to Caesar Augustus this way. Now listen to this. This is important. This isn't just nerdy history. Okay? The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. The euangelion concerning him, right? Okay, so we have all of a sudden this announcement that's written on this wall, 6 BC, that says, this is the gospel. Caesar Augustus has been born. And like, you know, this is good news that he was born for the whole world. This is the beginning of the gospel. Does sound a little familiar? Let's keep reading. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good, fortune of all, the beginning of all life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God, manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier time. Interesting announcement from 6 BC. Jesus was probably born in 4 BC. So you've got two years before Jesus was born. This was written not about Jesus, but about, but about the earthly ruler of Rome. And what does it say about him? He came to bring peace on earth. He brought peace on earth. That His birth is gospel. It is good news for the whole world because he's liberated the entire world and brought them into the Pax Romana, the peace on earth. And so I think, actually, this gives us some insight into how people understood the gospel and maybe also as how we understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ meant to people living in Jesus' day. As we read in Mark chapter 1, which we're going to get to in like two weeks, I don't want to spoil it, but Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says this, The beginning of the gospel, euangelion, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. When you hold the two next to each other, they sound somewhat similar. You wonder why Jesus, do you know as we celebrate on Friday, was crucified. We read things like, this is the gospel concerning Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We read things like, like what would have happened on, on this day, you know, uh, as, as Jesus in the triumphal entry, we call this Palm Sunday, as Jesus on the triumphal entry came in and people were shouting, praise God, blessings to the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, praise God in the highest. We see there is a claim about Jesus being made that when we set it next to Caesar looks awfully similar and and only one of them can be true. 
They can't both be true. Only one of them can be true. And so you see that this statement that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that Jesus is the true king, that this is the euangelion of Jesus. You can see now how all of a sudden how the gospel that was preached by Caesar comes into contact with the gospel that was preached by Jesus. You see, Caesar claimed to bring the Pax Romana, but what we know about the Pax Romana is it was a bloody, bloody peace. It was a peace kept by the sword that said, if you step out of line, you are dead. Done. And yet the gospel of Jesus brings peace through a crucified Messiah. And so it's important that we see, I think, first, the gospel in its historical context. And then understand that Jesus' day was not exactly one that was just, you know, excited about the claims of, a, you know, that there could be another king, the one who would really bring peace on earth. That's a threat. And I think we live in a world, too, where it's still a threat to say that Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And maybe in our day, it, you know, it's not so much Caesar declaring this about himself. <laughs> maybe we're not all that different than Caesar sometimes, claiming it for ourselves that we, that the good news is that I am free to do whatever I want, to live my life. I'm in control. Nobody tells me what to do. Or maybe it's the threat of governments. I mean, governments still use this sort of like, you know, gospel language as they pat themselves on the back talking about what a wonderful job they've done, right? I mean, we've seen that recently. There's plenty of government patting themselves on the back, right? For how, how it doesn't matter what country they are. Governments seem to be really good at, you know, patting themselves on the back, talking about how wonderful they are and using these language. Every election cycle, I mean, people are promising, I will make, you know, I will fulfill all of your wildest dreams, you know, like all the things that you thought you needed, you wanted, you, I'll give them to you if you just elect me, right? All of that stuff. So you see where the gospel could come into conflict with that. So we find Caesar declares to be divine. He declares himself the savior. He declares himself the beginning of the good news for all people on earth. And Jesus makes those very same claims. The gospel of Jesus Christ, then, is a direct challenge to the gospel of Rome. And so when we understand this term gospel and how it was used in the ancient world, we begin to understand the specific way that the Christian gospels were written. They present themselves, right? What are they called? Gospels, right? They're announcing something that something has changed, something has happened that has changed the whole world. And so I think it's important, actually, and this sounds stupid in a way when you, when you, when you say it like this, but it, to say, the Gospels are the Gospel. <laughs> when Mark says, this is the Gospel, when we read the Gospels, we are reading the Gospel. We're actually reading the good news announcement of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Right? So we read things like, this is the beginning of the gospel about the Messiah, the Son of God. And they present Jesus as the true divine king who came to bring true salvation. And not just to a certain group of people, but to the whole world. They were written as a direct challenge to the gospel or the so-called gospel of Rome and its peace. 
right? We read things even here from Mark chapter 1 again. Um, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. In Matthew chapter 24, it reads like this. And this gospel, the euangelion, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All right? Romans chapter 116. Paul, or, yeah, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the euangelion, the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, then, is a message of victory, that Jesus has been victorious and that in him there is now salvation. Over and against Caesar and his claims, the true kingdom, true salvation comes in Jesus. And so the gospel then is good, is, is good news. It's not just good advice. And I think that's a problem. Sometimes we look at the gospel more like good advice, but it is a good news announcement not good advice. It's not about what you have to do for God, but it's the news of what God has done for you to set you free. This is the good news of the gospel. So to summarize it this way, the gospel is the announcement of the saving work of Jesus. All right? And so I think the best place to kind of look at a summary of the gospel, because obviously we're not going to walk through an entire gospel right now, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in 1 Corinthians 15, um, verses 1 to 5, and a lot of people think then too um, that he kind of goes, so Paul is writing this letter to the people in Corinth, and, and a lot of people think like Paul is, is writing, he writes verse 1 to 5, and then he kind of goes, oh wait, let me just say this real quick. And then he kind of jumps back into this, into this kind of summary of, of the gospel. Uh, you know, he's... He, in that way, I resonate with Paul, you know, kind of like you start talking about something and then you're like, wait, hold on. I just wanted to say this one thing first. And then like, you know, and then kind of jump back. Um, so, so 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 5, Paul says this, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preach to you. So the gospel I preach to you. It actually says here, guys, if we're just going to get into the Greek, the gospel I gospeled, because <laughs> it's, uh, it's euangelion. Uh, so it's to euangelion, ho euangeliazo. So it really, you could translate it, the gospel I gospel to you. Um, so the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news, this gospel, that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. Now, he goes on, then he says, I passed on to you what was most important, and what had also been passed on to me. So what we find is Paul is not, he is not the guy who made this up. He got it from somebody else. Somebody else shared the good news, the gospel with him, and he has passed it on to the people in Corinth. Christ died for our sins, he says. So this is what was passed on to him. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Side note again, the gospel is not separate from the rest of the Bible, right? The gospel has to do with the whole story of God, right? We don't unhitch the Old Testament here. In fact, 
what Paul says here is, this is what the, this is what the, the Bible has been saying all along was going to happen. Right? So he's connecting it back to the whole story of God. We don't have time to get into that, but just side note there. All right, see, I'm already being like Paul. Uh, okay, so he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Uh, let's go ahead and just skip over to 20 to 28. Uh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn, to the kingdom, turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. Let's just unpack this for a second. The gospel Paul delivered contained four events, right? That Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was, that he was raised, and that he appeared, right? In verses 1 to 5. Okay, if we're just looking at verses 1 to 5 there, that's what we find. We find those four things. Right? That Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. And if we want, we can add then to that Jesus is going to return. Right? That he is reigning and he will return. Um, but I think it's probably... Sometimes I don't know, quite know what to do with that, you know, because, like, again, you have them, they're all, they're all separate. But I think, it, I think if we just look at those four things, we're going to find all everything wrapped within those four things, <laughs> if that makes sense. That Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised... That he appeared. So the gospel then is to tell, uh, as Scott McKnight says, is to tell, to announce, to declare, to shout aloud the story of Jesus Christ as the saving news of God. And so as Paul says there, the gospel sits within the larger story of the Bible by saying, according to the scriptures, the story of Jesus makes sense only as it follows and completes the story of Israel that came before it. All right, and we could walk through the whole story of the Bible. That's something I, maybe we'll use a Sunday morning, 9 a.m. for. Um, but walking through uh, the story of the Bible, I think it's totally worthwhile to do. But we're going to keep moving. Because what we see then is salvation flows from the gospel. Salvation flows from the gospel. The gospel saves people. Jesus died, right? And he died with us. He identifies with us. So Paul doesn't get into theories of the atonement or exactly what happens on the cross, you know, exactly how Jesus saves by dying on the cross. He doesn't get into that. But there are some things I think we see, uh, you know, just this idea that, uh, as he says, you know, and uh, where he talks about Adam as we move on to verse, um, just, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. We find this idea of identification. Jesus identifies with us. Right? In the incarnation. And this becomes important as we talk about hospitality. This one is really important. Jesus came and identified with us. His life matters. If all, of your, if all your gospel needs is just Jesus to be born and to die, you, I don't think you have a full picture of the gospel. Right? The good news is that Jesus identifies with us as human beings. And he identifies all the way to death with us as human beings. Jesus has identified 
with us. Jesus then has died instead of us. And I think that's really important. <laughs> we, we've got to mention that. Jesus died instead of us. This idea that Jesus dies as our representation and as our substitution, right? So the idea that Jesus dies in my place and for my sin. So he represents me. When he goes to the cross, he is representing me. He is dying on my behalf, in my place, and for my sin instead of me. And finally, I think we find that Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us so that we could be incorporated into the life of God, so that you and I could experience relationship and life with God, so that even this whole series, what we're talking about, could even become possible. That through the Spirit, you and I, because of the saving work of Jesus on the cross, could actually begin to know Jesus and to be like Jesus. That's made possible for us through Jesus' death on the cross. So we find Jesus died. Jesus was buried in his burial. Now this is something, you know, hey, probably when you're sharing the gospel with people, like that's not probably one that necessarily comes up all the time, right? I think it's interesting that when he summarizes the gospel, he says, Jesus was buried. Like if I'm honest, like that's not, you know, if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, it's not usually like, well, Jesus saves and he was buried. And he like, that's not usually the place I go, right? You kind of skip over that part because I mean, it seems obvious, right? Well, of course, if he died, he was buried, you know, but no, like he was buried. And and I think we see then in his burial, you know, just trying to think, why would Paul include this? In his burial, Jesus has fully identified with us unto death. He's been buried. I think it's, it's a way of saying Jesus was really dead. You know, there are people that believe, you know, Jesus was only kind of half dead. People thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. You know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there are people who will say anything. Right? It's like you can find anything on the internet. Like that's true when it comes to the gospel. Like you know, people will say, "All you know, look him up with all kinds of stuff." Um, but I think what Paul is trying to get at there is like Jesus was actually dead. He was dead, dead, not half dead, not kind of dead, not you know, like he was dead. He was buried, just like people are buried. Like you know, like that. And then he moves on and says, "Jesus rose." Now that's typically a part of our, <laughs> you know, a part of the. It's, it's a pretty important part of the gospel, right? You know, on on, on next Sunday we're gonna, you know. Big, you know, hopefully big celebration for that. And it's something we celebrate every single week that Jesus is risen. That's why Christians started meeting on Sunday mornings. was because that's when Jesus rose, right? You know, so, so it's a big deal, right? It reminds us uh, of our justification. So if we go to Romans chapter 4, verse 25, I'll just read this really quickly uh, if I can find it. Um, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Paul says here in Romans... Uh, he was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life. To what? I translate this to make us right with God. How does, a, how does another translation put it? I'd be curious to know. I didn't, I didn't actually look it up in the ESV. I know some of you guys are looking at that. For our justification. For our justification. To, for, to, and, and so the New Living Translation there really is just kind of taking that word justification and taking some liberties and unpacking it. Um, but yeah, to make us right before God. Right? So, so the gospel that Jesus rose reminds us that we've been made right with God because Jesus is alive. He didn't just die. 
Jesus rose again, making us right before God. We're reminded of God's incarnational work in the world, that he really came and he really rose to bring about new creation, which Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17. Why not? While we're jumping around, let's do it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'll go ahead and just read that uh, for us. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead that that we too will rise with him, that we have been given new life because Jesus is alive. and And we're reminded too of the final general resurrection so that we will rise with Jesus. Now the final thing we're going to point out is Jesus appeared. Now this is again, this is not usually place where we go with this, but, but I think it's interesting then that Paul includes that. But it reminds us, I think, that Jesus bodily rose. He was not just a spirit, right? We find Jesus eating fish, Jesus saying, I'm hungry, Jesus cooking over an open fire. We find Jesus like, you know, allowing Thomas to touch his wounds, like, like right? We find Jesus is an embodied human being again, like he rose physically, bodily from the dead and that he will come again to judge the world and bring heaven on earth, the new Jerusalem. And that's again, you know, as we get to 20 to 25, we find uh, Paul unpacking that in 1 Corinthians 15 there. So in other words, let's just summarize it. Because Jesus is the true king, he's the true prince of peace, peace is available to all who submit to him as Lord. I think this is the good news message of the gospel, that Jesus is king. And that's not just a decision I make in my heart. And I think, let's not confuse that for a moment. The, the gospel is not just a decision I make in my heart. It's a truth that is true whether I choose to believe it or not. Right? And I think that's important. That we remember like that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, that the gospel is true. is not just something I accept in my heart. It's a reality that I am invited to accept, <laughs> encouraged to accept, implore to accept, because it is a life-changing truth in every single way, shape, and form. But it's not just a decision I make in my heart. It's a reality. And so really my decision is, do I choose to live from that reality or continue to go my own way until the Lord's patience finally runs out? And so what we find then is salvation is being rescued out of the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says, into a kingdom of light, where true peace is found in all directions because the only good king is ruling. Jesus is Lord, which means Caesar is not, and that is the best news possible, not just for the people in Caesar's day, but for those of us today. It's the best news It's salvation from the destruction that has been wreaked by human beings all over God's good creation. It's a rescue from the lies we believe and the rebellion we participate in. All right, so let's keep moving here. As we get to John, we come back to John chapter 15, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. We read that today. We didn't sing it today. Sorry, guys. But uh, maybe we should have. Maybe that's my, my bad. Um, I'm not as brave as Tiffany. I didn't just want to go for it a cappella. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, we, re- we read this. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. 
or abide, it's another way to translate that, abide in me and I will abide in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A couple of things. Remain in me and I will remain in you. How do we remain in Christ? That's the gospel. We remain in Christ by the gospel, the power of the gospel. It is the power to save and to bring us into relationship with God. And so we abide in Christ, and it begins and ends with the gospel and everything in between. It's the gospel that brings us into relationship. And as we live from the story of the gospel, it changes the rhythms of our lives, the habits that we form, the things that we do, and it produces much fruit. It brings an action. And one of those actions then should be hospitality. And I think the, the connecting gospel and hospitality is really important. And we see this at the beginning of the church, right? Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. We're not going to go there and read, but what we find, right, is that we find incredible hospitality. We find people who, are, who in the church are in need because many of the people that first became Christians were in deep, deep poverty. We find people like, like Barnabas who just go, you know what, I've got an extra field. I'm just going to sell it and I'm going to give the money to you guys so, you, so we can take care of you, right? Talk about hospitality. Talk about generosity that we talked about last week as well. We find that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, should lead us to be generous, hospitable people who share with one another, who care for one another, but not just the people within the bounds of the church. What we find in the best parts of church history, when people were really living out the gospel, were truly embodying the gospel, what we see that happens when people do that is incredible blessing on the world that those Christians live in. Right? You think about the first hospitals in the Western world. Do you know who started them? Christians. The first orphanages, Christians, all of those things. When people are living out the gospel, it is a blessing to the world. What we also know is that sometimes the church has not done that, right? The church sometimes has been anything but a blessing to people. And there's lots of examples uh, that we could think of, of that. Uh, lots of places that uh, we could go. I mean, I think currently, if you listen to, I don't know, I, I if you listen to the rhetoric of Kirill, uh, the Archbishop of the Roman Orthodox Church, he's saying some really scary things that I think are very counter to the gospel. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but I think one of the main reasons is the, uh, the intertwining of power and Christianity into one thing, nationalism and Christianity into, into something very unhealthy. And he's saying some, again, some really scary things that I think are very counter to the gospel. Um, that is justifying and going a long ways to justify some atrocities that are happening we're reading about all the time and seeing all over the news. But he's not the only one. I mean, Ireland has its history with this sort of thing, right? The church acting in ways that are not, you know, we could say is very counter to the gospel. I'm from America, and I think it's very easy to say it too. America has uh, some serious issues uh, with that. Um, you know, I, I think if we look throughout history, I, I mean, World War II is a prime example, again, uh, of a place in, in, you know, where in Germany, uh, the church 
did some things that were very counter to the gospel, and, 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 it, and it justified a lot of really evil things that we still look at as like, you know, the prime example for pure evil, right? And so, so we have to, I think, admit that the church has not always been a place full of generosity and grace and kindness, where the gospel has not always been the center-driving, motivating thing that changes lives. But it is important that when we look at church history as a whole, we see that overall, in over the last 2,000 years, the church has done unbelievable, incredible good in the world when people have, have lived the gospel, believed the gospel, followed Jesus, allowed that story to change who they were. And so, hospitality uh, becomes the way of the Christian. Now, I have a whole section here, really interesting, I think, cultural uh, observation about uh, narcissism and, uh, and hospitality. But we're going to skip it. But if you want to know more about it later, just come talk to me. I, I, it's something I found fascinating anyway. Um, but but here's, here's the thing I, I think is important, is that... Um, the gospel, that divine hospitality, that's it, divine hospitality leads to human hospitality. In other words, we have received the grace of God, the kindness of God, the hospitality of God. You and I have received the hospitality of God, and that should lead us to be hospitable people. Cyril of Jerusalem, who wrote around AD 347, says it this way, God stretched out his hands on the cross that he might embrace the ends of the world. For this Golgotha is the very center of the earth. In the, what we find then is in the incarnation, at the cross and in the resurrection, God has shown himself to be a God of hospitality. And so our hospitality comes from and is motivated by the hospitality of Jesus. And so, the gospel, we find, is for the sake of others. It's always for the sake of others. It's not this narcissistic thing where it's all about me. And I'm kind of lamenting the fact that we're not going to go in that direction because I think it's really important. I think we live in a culture of narcissism where everything revolves around me. The world revolves around me. And it's very easy to make hospitality something that even, I think, apart from Christianity, becomes about me, right? Do whatever you want, it makes you feel good. There's no real moral grounding for hospitality, but if it makes you feel good, by all means, be a very hospitable person, right? Because we all know people who aren't Christians who are very hospitable people. But the grounding for that is like, hey, as long as it makes you feel good, go on and do it. If you think it's like a good thing to do, great, wonderful. That's fine. You do you. Right? But the gospel demands hospitality because we have received hospitality. Think of the, the parable that Jesus tells of the man of, uh, who, who was forgiven much and then refuses to forgive little. And I think we can look at that parable even there through the lens of hospitality. Those of us who have received the most incredible abundance of hospitality from the God of the universe should be motivated and driven to show others that hospitality. And so the gospel is for the sake of others. The gospel gives us a reason to be hospitable. 
I'm skipping a bunch here, sorry. So what we find then is that as the gospel gives us a reason to be hospitable, it, it gives us a foundation, a reality in which to ground ourselves, which I think is something that we're all looking for. And so I want to talk just for a moment about hospitality on two levels, the individual level and the more corporate level. And this should only take a second. You and I have been saved. That's an individual reality. You and I, as individuals, have been saved, right? But this isn't just about you. This isn't just about you. It's not just about me. Life is not about you. You are not as important as you think you are. <laughs> I'm just going to say it, and neither am I. I'm not as important as I think I am, right? Because I often want to make myself the center of the universe. Now, in some ways, you are more important than you think you are because the God of the universe is willing to die for you, to rescue you, to save you, that he cared so much about you that he gave his life up for you. In that way, yes, you are incredibly important. But when it comes to the grand scheme, the reality of things is, you know what? I'm going to die and in 100 years no one's going to remember me. Maybe my great-grandkids or something, you know, assuming I'm able to have them, you know, like, I'm blessed with that in that way. But for the most part, no one will remember me. Life is not all about you and it's not all about me. And I think that's one of those hard truths sometimes that like, we need to hear. I need to hear it at least. And so we've been saved, but it isn't just about us. God has a much bigger plan. And here's, I think, the incredible thing. is like God's incredible huge plan isn't just about you, but it includes you. You're a part of it. You're a part of what God is doing in the world. And that is incredible. It's incredible. Hospitality and gospel that is simply just about you is narcissistic. But this is about others and ultimately how Christ, through the church, blesses the world. And so, um, what we find then is that Jesus saves people today through individuals as we share the gospel. So in this way, it is individual. If you think about it this, you are here because somebody shared the gospel with you. Somebody shared the gospel with you or gave you a Bible or something. like You, know, you are here because somebody else invited you or shared something with you or get, you know they, it's not just you know you and being so enlightened right and so i think it is important that we see that there is an individual element of this and we see ourselves with a personal responsibility that says i need to share and be hospitable with people right but it's bigger than that it also includes i think the church and so here's um, a quote from a guy hans borsema with that name, you know he's smart. And he says it this way, only to the degree that the church is a community of hospitality and reconciliation can she also play a role in opening the doors of the kingdom of God. In other words, as the church believes the gospel and doesn't just say the gospel with our mouths, but lives the gospel, and this is important, it's not an either or. 
And this, I think, becomes sometimes a liberal conservative divide, right? Oftentimes you've got the people that say, it's all about just saying the gospel, speaking the gospel. Yeah, but if you're not living the gospel, what is, that looks pretty hollow, right? Like, if I went to the gym and I'm like, I'm going to teach a class on physical fitness, how many people would come, right? You would look at me and go, you may say the right things, but I'm not sure you believe the right things, right? You know, like you're not actually living the right thing. It would be hollow, you know? Or today, actually, I had a guard who was speeding with nowhere to go. It was obvious he just, you know, he just wanted to blow past me and kind of, you know, he was definitely, the speed van would have got him on the, on the N59, right? And so there was a way in which I looked at that guard and I'm like, you hypocrite. You wouldn't have mind but pulling me over for, for speeding and telling me about, lecturing me about road safety. And here you are, zoom, you know, down the road. And like, right? It's hollow. And so like saying all the right things, but having a life that doesn't match up with it, it's not going to, like, people are going to look at that and see it for what it is. And it's not going to be attractive to people. Equally, a life of just doing all the right things, like, look, there are plenty of good people in this world. Like, it's nice to be a good person. Great, wonderful. I'm glad you care about things. You know, you want to be nice to people. Like, that's wonderful. But it's not going to save people. Like, mowing, you know, mowing your neighbor's, you know, garden or, or whatever isn't going to save somebody. They're not going to go like, oh, wow, you know, look at the way that guy helped, uh, you know, mowed, mowed the neighbor's, you know, yard. I'm going to follow Jesus. Like, that's not going to happen. You have to have both coming together. It's not either or. It's both together, right? It's not just like doing the right things or saying the right things. It's the synthesis of bringing that together. And so, only to the degree that as a church, we say the right things, we share the good news, we announce the good news that Jesus is king, but we also live it out. As individuals and as the church, only as we do that will the world see the good news of the gospel as good news as the and the kingdom of God. We must be a place of hospitality where all are welcome. The church is a place of hospitality. And when the church is a place of hospitality, it is a testimony to the world of the fullness of God's coming kingdom. All right? Now, here's where we close. We're going to get really practical. What can we do? Right? Because that's what this, I mean, in a lot of ways, this series has been a very much a, you know, like, let's talk about, like, who God is, but like, let's get really practical and say, well, what do we do now? Like, what does it look like? So if I'm going to be a person who, who lives the gospel, who then is, is a person who lives uh, hospitably, what are just some really practical things I could do? I think very generally just saying, look for ways to bless people. Like, look for ways to bless people. You know, like in your life, some ways that you could bless some people. You know, whether that's at your work, whether that's in your family, whether that's in your friends, whatever, you know ways that you could be a blessing to people, all right? Look for those opportunities. Look for those ways. Show hospitality to fellow Christians. I think that's important. I, I, you know, like, like I said, I, quoted, I talked about Acts 2 and Acts 4. Like, we need to look after each other, guys. But that's important. It's important that our focus isn't purely just outward, but also with the people in here. You know, again, we could talk about, you know, either looking just only outward or looking only inward. Both of those are a problem, right? We need to be looking, you know, I guess we need to go wall-eyed and like look at both places at the same time. I, I don't know. Anyway, we need to be people who show hospitality to our fellow Christians. We need to be, and one of the ways we can do that is be active in our church. And I know it sounds silly, but like even things like the coffee and tea wrote it. Like, look, how many people appreciate drinking coffee and tea and eating biscuits? Like it didn't magically appear, right? 
Deirdre and Etronam came and made coffee and tea this morning. Thank you very much. You know, like that, that's a way to serve people, like to love people, to show them you care. All right, so even like simple things, menial tasks like that to say like, oh, well, you know, whatever. Like that's not, that, I'm, I'm more of a big picture guy, whatever. Like, come on. We can do the little things too, right? And so it's, it's being active in the life of the church. The last two things I would say, they're intertwined there. Commit to invite a friend who doesn't know Jesus over for dinner once a month. That's a great way. It's just saying, like, look, hey, I, I want to get to know people who don't know Jesus because they're valuable people who matter, and I want to share life with them. I want to get to know them. But ultimately, too, I, I want them to know, to experience the life to the full that Jesus offers. Same life I'm after, right? And so inviting friends who don't follow Jesus over for dinner once a month, maybe, you know, inviting friends to, to church. Those are all things that we can do. All right, here's where I'm going to close. And it's with this phrase, you can't, but Christ can. Because, I, you know, we can talk about all this wonderful idealistic sort of thing and say, hey, here's all the things you should do. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. Because you're a person. I'm going to fail. I have failed. I'm standing up here saying to do these things, and I do try and do them, but you know what? Hey, I've failed. Left to our own devices, our attempts at hospitality will always be weak, and they will always be narcissistic. But thanks be to God, who rescues and saves us. And hopefully over time, what happens is less and less we become narcissistic, narcissistic and, and weak. Right? And Jesus empowers us to be truly hospitable, not for what we can get from people, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but truly because we have received hospitality, we give hospitality, but we're going to fail. Sometimes our motives will be all wrong. Sometimes we're just going to fail. And it is in that we need to come back to the gospel. <laughs> Always. And remember that even though we fail, because of the generosity and hospitality of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness, we have reconciliation, we have acceptance. That we have the hand of God picking us up and saying, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Because of the generosity of God, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, by the power of the Spirit, have the ability to live from the vine, to bear much fruit, and to bless the world through the declaration and living out of the good news of Jesus. Aren't you glad I didn't do the whole bit on narcissism? <laughs> I know that was a lot, guys. But just to say, again, I'd be happy to continue this conversation because I think I... Probably, we probably should have divided that into two things. They're big topics. Um, but hopefully that was helpful to you. I hope so. To come back to the gospel. And to allow the gospel to change all of the rhythms of our life. The story of God to change the rhythms of our lives. And for us to appreciate more and more what Jesus has done for us. That's my heart for you guys. That's been the heart of this series. And as we get ready to go through the gospel of Mark... The heart behind going through the Gospel of Mark is so that we come face to face with the person and the work of Jesus, the good news of the Gospel, as we walk through that and, and we see all the amazing things that Jesus does. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then Alyssa's going to um, come up and, and lead us in a song. And as the song plays, um, we can take communion. And again, what a better reminder, you know, Eucharist. Like, we come together and we, we celebrate, we give thanks for what Jesus has done for us 
on the cross. And so that's exactly what we do then in communion. We give thanks for what Jesus has done for us. So I encourage you to do that, to give thanks for the gospel. Thanks be to God for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus.